We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. General Superintendent Emerita of the Wesleyan Church and founder of Hope International, Joanne Lyon, joins the podcast to discuss John Wesley, reclaiming our identity in the church and the opportunity to lead in these difficult days. Joanne Lyon, I am so proud and excited to have you at our All That to Say table today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Well, that's what people say at the beginning. <laughs> we'll see what you say at the end. But I'll, I'll let you know. You'll let me know, because I know that what you speak is truth. And uh, it's been my privilege to become acquainted with you over the last few years, and I am still in awe of just what you do and how you do it, because there are a few figures that I know that have had such a transcendent reach and voice uh, especially within uh, many quarters where uh, people of faith don't have access. You've been able to walk in and hold true to yourself while at the same time intersect and win the respect of a world that is much broader and much more diverse than, well, the town where I live, for instance. <laughs> and anyway, I so respect your your capacity, Joanne, to to have conversations, to build bridges, but also to lead people to truth as you understand it. But I have to get something out of the way straight up. Okay. Joanne Lyon. Oh, Jim Lyon. <laughs> yes, that's okay. right. <laughs> so let's just, let's just clarify. We are not related. Not related. You're a lion by marriage. That's right. Your husband's name is? Wayne. Wayne, Wayne Lyon, yes, who I do not know, uh-huh. but I'm thinking somewhere in history, there has to be a lion convergence. Someplace along the line, because there's this whole thing about whether it's got an S on the end oh, or an oh, N on the end. No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Joanne, there's no thing about that. <laughs> There is no S on the on the end. That's, That's right. Why. Now there's a crowd of people that do that. That's right. But not ours. But not ours. What what should I say? The pure. That's right. Oh. That's exactly right. <laughs> but uh, do you know this? That the Queen Mother Elizabeth, the the mother of the present Queen Elizabeth II uh-huh. in the United Kingdom, that woman, the Queen Mother, was a lion. That's her yes. maiden name. I and have been I, told that. I'm just telling you. Uh, they were devout Presbyterians. I, I read up on this because I thought, well, surely I, I have a stake in the in the palace. Uh, <laughs> they were devout Presbyterians, and the Queen Mother's father was a little, spe- uh, you know, he was suspicious of the young prince that was courting his daughter because he felt like the royal family was just a little bit out there in terms of their practicing their faith. Yes. That's what he thought in the day, back in the 20s, and he acted ultimately acquiesced, and of course she became the Queen Mother. But I always think about that when people say, you're a nobody. Oh, wait a minute. A lion's my name. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> I, I, a good I one. Just, I just want you to know, Joanne, whatever else people say about you, you've got that tie. <laughs> I'm going to remember that one. I did know that that lion was there, but I didn't know all that story, so well, that's good. And, and you just believed what I told you. Yes, which, I did. Which I did, totally. <laughs> which, which says a lot about our conversation right. going forward. You uh, have had what I would call a storied career. Uh, and still uh, living out new chapters. And as you have uh, kind of walked through uh, a lifetime of, of service, because your life has been dedicated to service. And as service grounded in your faith, you grew up in the Wesleyan Church and have stayed with it all these years. And, you know, the Wesleyan Church is a, 
is a moniker that bears witness to a theological train, which starts with John Wesley. You have developed a, a fascination and a healthy way of understanding Wesley's value frame, his, his exegesis of Scripture, his, his own experience with Christ that has hugely informed the Wesleyan Church and many other churches that have different names but all tie themselves to that Wesleyan root. So, Joanne, I'm so excited for you just to unpack for us a little bit your sense of John Wesley. Who was that guy? It's a name that most people can recognize but may not know these days. Well, as I've gotten in more deeply to understand who John Wesley, I mean, I grew up, of course, that's who we are, and et cetera. But I think there's several pieces with John Wesley that I think are very significant. Uh, I think of his failure. Uh, you know, he was a great Anglican, and he was going to come to America and save the Native Americans. Um, and he had great knowledge and, and, and a desire to follow God. Uh, and he came and failed. He didn't wasn't able to do that and got back on the boat to go back to in England uh, uh, as a failure. And this is about 18th century. Yes, mm -hmm, exactly. And so as he's going back, there's a, a storm. Uh, and he looked around, and he was scared to death, and he was sure he was going to die. And here are the Moravians praying, and he walks over and talks to them. How could you pray in the midst of this? And they're, they're a group of believers who group of believers. have their own identity That's as right, Moravians. exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, they began to tell him about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and he was, you know, he theologically perhaps knew it, but didn't quite understand it and began to pray with them. And then Peter Bowler from that group began to be his mentor. Um, and so as we move along, as he came back to England, still trying to figure out what he should do and whatever, and of course there's that great moment that we that's referred to as his heartwarming experience. Um, and uh, I, as, as is more generally talked about and as he theologically talks about it, it was when he really uh, gave his all to the Lord and received the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so we, and I, as I go back, when I look at, at the New Testament, you know, we've got, uh, as they left Pentecost and they went out and, and on, and they would say to people, have you received the Holy, oh no, we know Jesus and we know John the Baptist, but we don't know the Holy Spirit. And so there is that, that, that's, that piece, that part. There's a step. There's a step. A step past acknowledging Jesus. That's right. It's kind of like Wesley also talks about a house. You can sit on the porch. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and and I've even elaborated on that. Of course, you can sit on the porch, you can rock in your rocking chair, you still have control. You know, mm -hmm. uh, but when you finally walk into the house, and then you begin to discover all the rooms, that's in a sense moving into life in the spirit, the Holy Spirit really guiding and directing, and and the continued peace that happens. So I think that's where that with with Wesley, where I see this, and then. You know, he preached and he got kicked out of the out of the Anglican big churches in, in England, and he had no place to go but the fields. And when he got to the fields, that's where he became in touch with poor people. He became in touch to know what their lives were like, what was happening there. And then this is what began to these these revivals began to sweep, and people were were came to Christ and all of this. But it wasn't just uh, fervor. It impacted culture. Right. It, it was a revival in the sense that we could understand people yes. responding to a, a stirring in their heart. Mm -hmm. I, I want to change course. Um, I want to embrace Jesus as mm -hmm. Lord. Uh, 
the, the scriptures would suggest a kind of born-again experience. I mean, right. it was that, but it was also a kind of a sweeping movement that changed society. Isn't that true? That's exactly I mean, right. born of Wesley's own spiritual journey, mm-hmm. he became such a powerful voice. And I think ev- evolved is maybe a hard word, but he just kept growing in that's his right. understanding of his calling. That's right. And that's what I think is, is what, is, as we begin li- work, uh, life in the spirit, as we really begin, we continue to grow and continue to grow, and we never end growing. Uh, it is continuing to grow in that and continuing to learn uh, and becoming more like Christ every day. Uh, we can't make ourselves become more like Christ. We can learn, etc. But finally, the Holy Spirit guides us into that uh, in that way. And so that's why I become very excited, uh, Jim, when I look at the impact of uh, of it was both spiritual and cultural change. And he and he didn't say, well, uh, to the children working in the mines, we'll just use an example. He didn't say, oh, that's terrible. No, 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 we don't want you to do that. But he changed the law so they didn't have to. So that's where you see this intersection of uh, faith and working with systems, evil systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think we have a hard time putting that together these days. So I always go back to that time in England, and literally, and I can expand more on that, but literally, when the French Revol- bloody French, the bloody revolution of France happened, that was the uprising of the poor. Mm-hmm. It didn't impact England because the poor were already being empowered and strengthened. Yes, I've read before historians, believing or not, yeah. can uh, can identify that the Wesleyan revivals yes. saved England right. from some of the horrors that France experienced exactly because right. of the way in which change was achieved uh-huh. through the preached word, right. actually, and and that movement of the heart. You know, so it's about the power of the gospel, and all of this is not it's not bifurcated. I guess what I keep saying, I don't believe it's bifurcated. It impacts this, and, and so one of the the terms that often comes alongside Wesleyan mm-hmm. is holiness. Right. Uh-huh. Wesleyan holiness. And, mm-hmm. and that is a, a kind of an umbrella that, mm-hmm. that speaks to and defines a large section of the mm-hmm. Christian family right. who are rooted in these ideas. Mm-hmm. Wesley, as you've just described, experienced a, a filling of the Holy Spirit. That's his description, the mm-hmm. Aldersgate moment, where yes, that's a place right. where he had this warming of the heart mm-hmm. and as he experienced the Holy Spirit as, as a new dynamic mm-hmm. in his Christian journey, it, it spoke to him about holiness, mm-hmm. that that supernatural Holy Spirit mm-hmm. could actually empower him to maybe resist temptations or mm-hmm. uh, chart a course differently than if he didn't have that spiritual mm-hmm. experience. There was that. And, and I think many people in our churches today understand that what I would call individual holiness, mm-hmm. but you're describing a Wesley who was not content or or could not stay just with his own mm-hmm. individual holiness. He had to kind of reach for what I might describe as a social holiness. That's right. That if if the Lord is making me holy and elevating me with a kingdom life, mm-hmm. inevitably I'm going to breathe oxygen into the world around me mm-hmm. to pull it also into a better way of living. Is that am I capturing yes, that in you're your sense? Capturing it beautifully. Yes, I, that's the way I, totally I see it. And, and, and as you look through Scripture, as you look through the Old Testament, in fact, uh, and then Wesley's experience of what holiness and justice go together. Uh, uh, in fact, I love that text in Amos, let justice roll down like a river and righteousness as a never-failing stream. So if you, if you just focus just on righteousness, then it's about me, it's individualism. 
individualism. Yes, I'm being holy. I'm trying to be more righteous all the time. If you just focus on justice, then you don't have any power. You only have your own personal power or political power, or whatever, to make it happen. But you, when you put that together, it's the nexus that brings healing and brings uh, wholeness. And you you referenced that uh, in the age of Wesley, when John and his almost his famous brother Charles yes, right. are uh, about the business of of ministry. Uh, England was in the is a in transition. It's moving into an industrial age. There's a lot of dislocation. Mm-hmm. And, and and again, things we take for granted today, like ch- child labor laws, mm-hmm. did not exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a student of Charles Dickens and Dickens' own story of yeah. working as a child in a blacking factory, which was like a shoe polish place. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as a boy, because his dad was thrown into debtor's prison. I mean, a lot of things that we, we think of as a Dickens novel actually mm-hmm. was real life. Real life. And Wesley... And his followers began to speak into mm-hmm. that, into the British world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the children working the coal mines. Mm-hmm. I've also heard you talk about the corn laws. Yes. Well, tell me about that. What's that about? Well, the corn laws, I love, but also when you mentioned about the debtor's prison, yes. they, the Wesleys went right out to the debtor's prison. They started paying the debt for the debtors, to, the people to get out of the debtor's prison. And They, then, were, they were essentially and covering them, the debt so they could be free. So they could be free and help them start businesses. Uh, but the corn laws are very fascinating because ale, uh, the price of grain had was had gone up because ale was selling so much. Mm-hmm. Now the problem also was in the what were called the slums of London at that time, uh, there was a lot of drinking, so there was a lot of drunkenness, and so uh, women and children were desperate and all of this, and so the price of ale had gotten so I mean the the price of grain had gotten so high that poor people could not buy bread, because bread came from grain, of course. And uh, they couldn't buy their bread. Uh, Now, I think in our day, we would have all organized the middle-class people, go take bread to these people. But that is not what Wesley said. No, we're going to change the law so that the poor people can buy their own bread. And so that's exactly what his followers did, and uh, and that was part of the revivals, is they, they... lobbied the parliament and got the law changed. And so those are called the corn laws. And the price of grain went down and poor people could buy their own bread. And changed the whole landscape. Changed the whole landscape. Absolutely changed the whole landscape. You know, as we talk about Wesley, though, an outstanding figure, a fascinating uh, character, a character I don't mean in a diminutive sense, but just as an individual, his story, Uh uh, like few others. Uh, Jesus is, is, is the heart and soul, the the reason for Christianity. How do you connect all this dynamic storytelling about Wesley to Jesus in a Wesleyan tradition? Absolutely. Well, you see that Jesus was always with the marginalized. He touched the marginalized. He was with the people. Now, he certainly was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the power people at that time. But, But he began to help them see marginalized people have value. Uh, I mean, I, 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 first thing that comes to my mind at this moment are the, the lepers. My goodness, the lepers. Uh, if you had leprosy, you had to call out ahead, leper coming, leper coming, because so people get out of the way. They were the most despised, one of the most despised people. And yet somehow I'm always stunned when I read the New Testament and read uh, uh, the story, particularly in the Gospels, uh, that the lepers had no—they were not intimidated to ask Jesus. 
<laughs> they somehow felt welcomed. They felt welcomed. And I think about the 10 lepers that said, Jesus, heal us, heal us. I mean, they didn't, they didn't say, oh, you didn't like us. or No, they just they, they shouted out because they somehow knew his love reached them in some way. And so I feel like that's very much with Wesley as well, uh, that um, he, he certainly talked. He was, in, he was a, an Oxford scholar. He was an Oxford <laughs> don, really. Yes, right, right. Uh, so he was a scholar. And he could speak in those levels as well. But somehow, the person living in the worst slum of London knew that they were loved by Wesley. But more than that, they were loved by God. Yes. And uh, in that, he followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Yes. And here we are. Uh, this whole conversation kind of born mm-hmm. out of the Wesleyan label right. of the congregation in which you were raised, the church you have served. Uh, you married a man who became a Wesleyan pastor. Yes, right. So exactly. you've, you've done that. What shall I say? <laughs> that assignment, yeah. which is a world to itself. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, you found yourself becoming ordained yourself. Uh, you, I, I, when I say rose through the ranks, it sounds like there's some kind of like advancement in career. But I mean, the Lord called you from thing to thing. Ultimately, you were the general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church. Mm-hmm. The first time they've ever had just a single person with a role, and certainly the first woman right. to be at the table in that way. Mm-hmm. Now. Uh, the general superintendent emerita, mm-hmm. but still cherished and and honored by your church family with uh, post and voice. Uh, you've seen a lot of things come and go. Uh, the Wesleyan Church, like many churches, has uh, had to cope with the twists and turns and developments. With, with all that you've seen and all that you know, what has kept you a Wesleyan? Well, I think what has kept me is the theology. Uh, and, 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 of course, the relationships. Yes. I mean, those are very strong. Uh, but I just still believe, and I, and I don't want to be very narrow in this theology, Jim. I'm just saying that I just I so cherish how the, the, we view Scripture and how it impacts culture. And I think early on I was called in this whole part of impacting culture. However, I believe everybody should be called to that. Mm-hmm. We don't just live alone. Um, and so we, we go, you know, we do our... All of our churches go through these ups and downs and trying to figure out how do we live out the gospel in these days. Uh, and so I, I think that just following some of those trajectories is what's encouraging. And certainly the early church gives me great uh, joy in looking at that. But I wanted to mention before we leave the, the Wesley, uh, there was an anthropologist in the 1930s. His name was Wellman, and uh, a secular anthropologist. And he was curious about the Wesleyan revivals impact in English industrial society. And so he's written a big book about it. But there's one line in there that I think is so fascinating because he finally couldn't figure it all out. And he said, finally, I believe it is the mystic power of sanctification that makes benevolent motives work. Mm. You know, that stays with me uh, because, you know, we all work and do good things and et cetera. But do the benevolent... But is the power of the Holy Spirit is what he was mm-hmm. talking about. He didn't know what to call it. But, I mean, he heard the word, of course. Uh, is that finally what, what, what crashed down slavery? You know. Yes, right. Um, is that finally what, what crashed down here in the States, the abolitionists and the work that they did? Uh, the slave trade, I mean, in England and then slavery here in this country. Uh, I think we, we, we tend to forget that power. And underestimate the and necessity under, of it. That's right, and underestimate that. Well, and the word sanctification is yes. not often heard in mm-hmm. ordinary conversation in the church or outside, but no. to essentially me- 
my my essential understanding of the term is it is to be set apart right, exactly. for a holy purpose. That's right. Well, changing the culture That's right. is a, and making it more uh, kingdom-oriented is a holy calling, even as I could be set apart in the deepest reach of my heart uh, to pursue the ways of Jesus. I think too many times we've seen the word set apart means uh, I'm alone. Isolated. Isolated. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, or separated in a kind of superior way with some hubris. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm better than. That's right. You know, and I, I don't want to leave this uh, little Wesleyan exploration a little bit without inviting you to share a little bit about an extraordinary invitation uh, that you received from the larger secular world, because uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later, about some of the, oh, maybe some of the chairs in which you've been invited to be seated, but the the Davos Converts, which happens in Switzerland annually. You know, this is the, the glitterati uh, kind of, of of world power players, government leaders, as well as business leaders. This is where, you know, the the British Prime Minister and the President of the United States and Bill Gates and Elon Musk or whoever else, yeah. they, they all crowd up there mm-hmm. to talk about what's coming down next and to do a think tank kind of. And, and you were invited uh, by the people who plan the Davos conference. I mean, this, this is jaw-dropping. You're invited to come and talk to them. Why? About what? Well, interestingly enough, they did a study uh, several years ago. Um, Klaus Schwab, who's the founder of the World Economic Forum, and uh, found out in about religion. And they found out in this study that by 2050, 90% of the world would be religious. Now, it would be various religions. Could be A to Z, but, but they would be spiritually there's interested. There's something spiritual. And they mm-hmm. that began to say, oh, my goodness, maybe we got to look at faith. How does faith impact all of this? And so that's so I was on the Council on Faith for the World Economic Forum. And so we produced uh, papers and, and uh, studies and so forth, and several things. For example, um, uh, I worked with Brian Grimm, who has uh, is regarding religious freedom and does a lot in the workplace. And um, uh, he, in his studies, he found that the more religious freedom was in a country, the better the role of women. It elevated the it status elevated of women. It elevated the status of women. And uh, because that, and it, it was a variety of, of religions, but that, that began to elevate. So he and I did a blog together about that. And then also the whole piece about faith and health in countries in particular. And how do, what is the role of faith with providing health care in countries? And so I, I happened to do a blog regarding Ebola, which it was literally the faith community that was able to turn the tide, particularly in Sierra Leone, um, with Ebola. that They expected hundreds of thousands of deaths, and they were able to turn the tide in ways in which they all work together. So I think what's happened with that, and then at various other kinds of discussions, is that they began to realize, wait a minute, there is some kind of power in faith. Um, now, I spoke only from the Christian faith, and I, I did not feel uh, intimidated in any way that I was speaking from the Christian faith. I didn't mm-hmm. say, oh, all faiths, I didn't do any of that, because that's mine. That's, you were I'm very precise my, and particular about yes, your understanding. My understanding of, of mm-hmm. God and how He works. And again, uh, I talked about the Holy Spirit, the power of God in this. Uh, so it's, fa- it's very fascinating, as I was in various, various circles and discussions, and, um, and I remember one night at dinner, um, I was with these heads, these CEOs of all these big corporations, and so we're going around dinner, and so they, um, you had to give your title. 
<laughs> oh, brother. So they got to me, and I said, well, I'm the general, big swallow, uh, the general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church globally. And somebody asked exactly, I said, well, it means I'm the head. And somebody said, does that mean you're like the Pope? And I said, yeah, I guess so, and we laughed. <laughs> two, bro, two people down from me said, I know the Wesleyan Church. I was stunned. I thought I was going to pass out at this dinner. And this, and uh, he said, yeah, and he was from Puerto Rico. He's from the States at the World Bank or something, but from Puerto Rico. And we have a, a, an academy down there. And he said, my friends are standing in line in a waiting uh, wait list to get their kids into that academy. It's so good. <laughs> Whew, <that's> a, <laughs> that was good. Cause, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've heard of the Wesleyan Church, and yeah. then it's a different story. That's right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, but I just, I just want to say that I, that and many discussions and many discussions at break time and all this kind of thing, and I just want to say that this said to me, I don't care how rich you are, how famous you are, whatever. There is hunger, there is hunger for faith, and we have to be willing to be there in those spaces. We cannot be intimidated by all that. And I guess one of the things, Jim, in all the places that I've been, I've always felt I was there for a voice for the people who did not have a voice in those mm-hmm. places. Yes. It's not about me. It's not about, oh, I'm so great. It's about the voice for voiceless. And, and, and out of that Davos World Economic Forum, I mean, isn't it true if I recollect uh, correctly that there were some Iranian mullahs there uh-huh. who listened to you yeah. and said, you know, we'd like to hear more about that. That's exactly right. And you found yourself going to Iran to talk about uh, yeah. Wesleyan yeah. I didn't go to Iran. We couldn't go. Yes. But we met in, in Switzerland. Met in Switzerland? Yeah. With a group of Iranian... With Iranian religious leaders. Uh, there, there were major leaders in uh, the clerics and scholars, both mm-hmm. clerics and scholars from Iran. And I was asked to speak about... How do Wesleyans, I thought this was so crazy, how do Wesleyans believe and practice the words of Jesus in caring for the least of these? This is their, their this, ask of you. They're asking of this. Oh. And uh, I wonder, I started to say, you mean Christians? But no, 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 Wesleyans, we want to know that. So I, uh, of course, talked about Jesus, what he did, and then I talked about John Wesley. And they were very intrigued about how Wesley and what he had done but and I made it very clear this about the power of God. I actually I asked first. I said, "Well, they said tell some stories or whatever." And I said, "Well, can I talk about the Holy Spirit?" Sure, you know. So I think we get too intimidated mm-hmm. in these things. And, and I mean, I must say, I was I wanted to ask first if I should do this. Yes. But they wanted to know this. They wanted to know this. Uh, and so um, so then I talked about that. I talked about um, uh, Wesley and what he had done. And the Wesleyan Church, I talked about, because our history in the Wesleyan Church is we were abolitionists. We left the Methodist Church over the abolition of slavery, because at that time, the Methodist Church held, held to slavery. And we said no, and so we had uh, abolitionists down south, et cetera, people doing all of this. And so I gave them that, that, that a bit of that. And afterwards, Jim, I'll never forget, one of the clerics came up to me, and he said, I can't explain it, but he said, I thought I was going to cry while you were talking. <laughs> And I thought that is the work of the Holy Spirit. I could have never produced that, you know. It's supernatural. Yeah. Well, so even I, the invitation I, is supernatural. Exactly. And then I was invited back the next year. So you did it uh, following you yes. also. And they wanted me to talk about Wesley again uh, on some other on on really on I can't remember was 
not religious tolerance, they didn't use that word, but multi-faiths and how did that work together. And Wesley did a great job with that as well. So I talked about that, and I've laughed later and said, uh, I think those Iranian clerics and, and scholars know more about Wesley than most of us in, in our pews today. <laughs> well, they certainly have an interest level that yes. uh, would bear good witness to us. But then, we should do some homework. Yeah, then I didn't know uh, that they had large— because what we know about Iran is very— it's, there's a curtain there that we don't see. I did not know that they had large seminaries for women. And uh, uh, and he said, yes, we have. I said, oh, really? I didn't know that. They, several of them were talking. They said, yes. Uh, and women teach theology, and women, they can't be clerics, but they do this. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to know if I would bring over some female scholars uh, from, the, from, the Christian, from the Christian Bible uh, perspective— to meet with them and to have an exchange. Uh, and I said, wow, I would love to. I don't know how in the world we could get visas, though. And one of them winked and said, we can get you a visa through the Pakistani embassy. Well, but I thought, I think I'll wait on that you know, for a while. <laughs> but still, an but open, door, open door. open door. Again, a, a demonstration of some kind of hunger and thirst. That's right, exactly. And uh, what a great opportunity yeah. to be able to speak in response to that. So I still hear from some of them. I, they'll send me emails well, saying, I'm praying. Will you pray for me? I'm on my way to someplace. You know. Extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And given... Uh, some of these experiences, and and you have a broad uh, grasp. We've talked a lot about the Wesleyan Church, which mm-hmm. is a great uh, family within the larger body of Christ. Mm-hmm. I know that you know uh, my tribe well. I'm from absolutely. the Church of God, uh, just up the road from yeah, your uh, Wesleyan home base, and and the Nazarenes and the Salvation mm-hmm. Army and the Free Methodists. I mean, it's a whole crowd of us. Yes. When you look at this whole kind of umbrella of Wesleyan holiness, mm-hmm. folks, uh, what gives you hope? You know, in Jim, the world changing. I mean, we're so upside down. That what you just said gives me great hope. If we could really grasp what we believe uh, and and live it out and 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 not and be courageous, I think God has called us. And I'm going to cry here in a minute, but I think God has called our whole Wesleyan Holiness tribe to a time in history that He's opening doors for us because we have the history in the back. Mm-hmm. We have something to follow. Uh, uh, that we could be, I think, really lead in these days. We can't. We're getting too distracted by this and that and the other, and uh, and and we've we've got to realize that. I don't know how do we say that we've been called as a special people. I don't. I don't want to make it in that way. I'm saying that not way. Well, but 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 <clears throat> can we see our special calling? Can we see a specific calling? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I when we look at the the second great awakening with. Um, Finney. Finney, Charles Finney. I mean, that was our tradition. That he was our <laughs> yeah, tradition. He kind of embraced uh, yes. that, right? And uh, and to see how I mean, I think about the city of Rochester. At the city shut down because there was so much conviction. You know, they couldn't even go to work. the The conviction of God was on them in some way. We use that term conviction, but yes, the yes. presence, something, hunger. I guess I should say mm-hmm. hunger for something that the entire city sat, shut shut down during those times. And uh, then, you know, he would have his meetings and people would call. But also, when they were, they came to Christ, they were also given the task to be abolitionists, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It wasn't just an individual experience. Yeah. It was a redeeming for eternity's sake. That's right. But with a clear mandate right. for bringing the kingdom to life here that's and now. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. And and that that whole 
pericope, that lens, is something that uh, I'm hearing you say. If we could just own that and yeah. kind of live into that a little bit That's more, right. maybe we're at an intersection of history yes. where that is especially necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we I had uh, as a, a guest on this podcast uh, some weeks ago uh, an author. Kristen Dumay, and she has written a book called Jesus and John Wayne. Yes. It's become almost a bestseller. I know it. Um, I know you're familiar with that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of her thesis is that there has been in American Christianity per se uh, a kind of um, maybe some detours from Jesus in the way in which we've imagined ideal Christian manhood and womanhood. Mm -hmm. Now, you're a woman Mm -hmm. who has lived through an age. uh, The Wesleyan Church has always been open to women in leadership, but that's that's not necessarily the cultural norm uh, in Christianity or even in the secular world. As you have walked through all that and you've listened to Kristen or uh, written read her writing, uh, what do you think? Do you think there is something to that, that we have some work to do on on gender within the Christian community or maybe even in the way which we understand Jesus? I think so, for sure, Jim. When I read her book, I kept thinking, I need to write a parallel story that was happening in all the things that she talked about because there was a parallel story of, um, you know, I was involved in helping to start Christians for Biblical Equality, and that would have mm-hmm. been during the 80s. And uh, then as we were, and as I look at our church and, and et cetera, but it was a timid voice in light of all this loud patriarchy. Um, and and sorry to say, all of us, the Wesleyan Church, all of us were influenced by that, mm-hmm. very much influenced. I mean, the first woman to be ordained in the United States was ordained by the founder of the Wesleyan Methodist Church. So we've never been away from ordination of women, but we have followed with the culture and we've followed with the church culture uh, that has uh, has has diminished that that leadership role, um, and I believe we're coming back to it, but it's still there, and uh, and really trying to say this is what the scriptures say. This is where God is called. I mean, my mother was ordained; she was way back. But I want to say something. You know, I look back at some of our older early founders. My goodness, if I stood up, I, I double dog dared somebody the other day and said, I dare you to stay at this district conference, these words. One of our, I could give you a lot of words, but one, this one is the funniest. He says, It's nothing but bigotry, a need for bossing, and jealousy in men that have kept women from their rightful place. And besides, there are a lot better preachers than men. Oh. <laughs> now, he was one of the founders of our church. That, that's a quote. That's a quote. Yes, 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 that's a quote. And so, uh, like I said, I double dog dared her just to stand up and say that and then say, wait a minute, this is the founder of our church. Uh, so, But in a sense, we were marginalized in those days. So when you're marginalized, I'm, this is my question, when you're marginalized, do you say things really that the Scripture says and you're bold and courageous? Or when you want to be more accepted, you tone all that down? Uh, and I think that's where we that's where we went. So as in in her book, and as she talks all about, I mean, I lived all that stuff. And uh, so it was it became very, okay, well, we need to be more uh, accepted, and we'll do this kind of thing rather than being really living what the scripture says we should live. And, and then at the same time, it's juxtaposed with the feminist movement. Yes. You know, I was I was involved in those early days in the '60s with the feminist movement. I was part of the University of Missouri in Kansas City, and uh, there were some you know some radical feminists that were there, and and uh, and really, I mean, 
what they taught and what they were talking about was not terrible. I mean, it was really right, et cetera, that time. But the church rejected that. So the church had this turn, close the door on this, forgetting what really Scripture says and what our history was. Well, and I'm, I'm, I lived through some of the feminist upheavals of the, you know, 30, 40, 50 yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and and some of the extreme positions, you know, some yes. of the more, ex, what shall I say? Well, just extreme yeah. highlighting of some people kind of on, off the cliff. Right, exactly. I think merged into this whole idea of women in leadership mm-hmm. and people, rather than challenge the definition mm-hmm. that some feminists would present, just retreated altogether right. from the issue because of, of fearful of how yeah, it might exactly. be read or misinterpreted. There's, mm-hmm. I mean, there is that that piece of reality in our own history. But again, it seems to me almost like prescient mm-hmm. that we come from a theological tradition which has always esteemed uh, the value of men and women. Your sons and daughters That's will right. prophesy exactly. uh, from the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and prophecy there meaning mm-hmm. you know, just the declaration of right. the word. Uh, that we come from that tradition mm-hmm. and we're at an intersection where that is so much in the secular culture right now, right. isn't it? And yet, yeah. honestly, we're or spot on, really, mm-hmm. in terms of the way in which we can do, we can speak to that issue, but yeah. maybe sometimes afraid. Yeah. So as you as you think about that, mm-hmm. uh, are you encouraged that we're on the right track, or you feel like uh, the the church is paused or it's receding? I believe we're moving in the right track, but we need more encouragement to move. So, uh, some more wind in the sail from yes. people who may be standing on the curb. That's right, exactly. Yeah. And realizing this is, and then I think we're suffering from a, our lack of identity. Who are we, uh, and where do we fit in all of this? Uh, and I think we it's a it's a new reclaiming of our identity that we need to come back and reclaim who we are. What would you say to someone listening today who said, oh, I hear all that, and but it sounds like a lot of slippery slope talk to me, <laughs> because we know the Bible says, uh, Paul says, I, I never let a man teach a woman. Uh, we got that down. And once we open the door to this, we, it feels comfortable, uh, but it's really just a slippery slope to a hundred other issues where mm-hmm. we're going to compromise the word. Now, the Joanne Lyon that's sitting at this table, I think, would describe herself as absolutely committed to the Scripture as a supernatural mm-hmm. revelation that's not subject to our tweaking. But what do you say to someone who says, how do you reconcile mm-hmm. uh, this kind of train of thought with your own theological position? Well, you, we have to look at the Scripture as whole, the whole. And so we go back at what did Jesus, how did Jesus, how did he, you know, he, he, he appointed women. He had, you know, we can name them all the way through go, Romans 16, names names many of them. And then just how he, uh, uh, how I mean, in the New Testament, I don't mean yes. Jesus, but I mean the, Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then how did Jesus handle women in that time too? I mean, he valued the, the worst that would have been thought of in the culture at that time. And then who was at the resurrection? You know who proclaimed, and he he, he planned that. That yeah. didn't just was happen. it by chance that Mary yes. Magdalene happens to be the first person assigned to tell. That's right. Yeah. And so so we have that, and then we can go through on the New Testament. So that all has to be seen in light of that one line. And but many people will take that one line out of context. It's even out of context because that was in the context of what Paul was speaking about with the culture at that time and the the cult of Dionysus. Actually, uh, the cult of Dionysus was a, a religious cult, uh, but many people were coming to Christ out of that cult. 
And that cult was they it was called the they worshipped the god of wine in the forest mm-hmm. and cross dressed and all this kind of thing. And and then they did what was called a yuya latte. It's a it's a, a noise. It's out of, deep out of the throat. I mean, I've even heard it in Africa. Uh, it's uh, like that. And they would do that in worship. So they would come into the Christian worship and do that mm-hmm. because that's what they were used to. Mm-hmm. And so that's when Paul realized we can't get on with this kind of thing. We've got to learn more. That's when right. he said, ask, ask your husbands. Well, the women were all illiterate. Yes. And so you ask your husband. So that's what that was. But that doesn't mean today. That was there so that the... So that the uh, Christian ministry could continue on, and they learned, and they began right, to right. work. So it's 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 the it's principle that. undergirding the text. That's right. Is what needs to be elevated beyond just that precise that circumstance. Precise, exactly yeah. that precise name. So that's I think that that um, uh, some one of our old holiness people way back in the late eighteen hundreds by the name of Godby. He uses that term, and he said. Of course, he was, you know, they were so radical and said things so brash. And he said, I don't know of any scripture in hell, any scripture that's damned more people to hell than that scripture, keeping <laughs> women from doing what God's called them to do. So <laughs> he, he, was a, he was a powerful voice for yes. his, his point of view. That, yes, very point of view for that I, one. I, you know, not he to, didn't say damned, he said dragged more people to dragged hell. Dragged took them, yeah, because yeah. damned would be a step too far. That would have been too far. Dragged more people to hell, yeah. I, uh, when I was a college student, uh, young man, at a at a Wesleyan holiness school called Seattle Pacific University. Uh-huh. Uh, my local church where I attended had a woman who taught the Sunday school class. Uh-huh. Her name was Nancy Amundsen. She was brilliant. We all just loved Nancy. She was probably 10 years older than the students. Uh-huh. Anyway, she was doing a, a kind of verse-by-verse Sunday school walk for us, and I went every Sunday, and we approached this text. Mm-hmm. It was coming up, and I was reading it, and I was really troubled as a young guy. I mean, I'd grown up with women in leadership yeah. and all that, but still, I I was looking at it. I was yeah. trying to take the whole word. I wasn't going to just be cowed by my comfort zone in history, uh-huh. you know, what I originally need to own this. Anyway, so I, I got to the class. She reads this text, and I just had to raise my hand and said, Nancy, um, I love you. We all love you, but here's this verse that says... I never let a a woman teach a man, uh-huh. and I'm telling you, here we are, <laughs> uh, college students, uh, and there you are teaching us, and I'm, I'm trying to reconcile that. Yeah. And she replied by saying, well, Jim, you're not a man yet, so don't worry about it. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, a great I'd line. I'd never forget that because it just kind of stopped me in my tracks. That is a great line. And, I love uh, it. and, and it's a testament to Nancy's own, what shall I call, anointing. Yes, exactly. Well, exactly. as... as you have walked through ministry, and we've talked a lot about these intersections between culture and our faith. Another you know, really dynamic part of that that we've just brushed by, but I'd like to dive in a little bit deeper, is, is the reality of we in the United States have often seen church and state as completely divorced. That It's almost like a, a, a commandment. We, you know, church and state are separate, and so on and so forth. And yet you have, you have navigated a path— faithful and true to your church and to your faith, but also intersecting with the public square, with the government, secular agencies, and so on. And help us understand that. Uh, How do you see those two streams alongside? Are they antagonists? Are they sometimes partners? What should they be? What would you say to people today of faith who are trying to figure out, what's my place Good question, Jim, because I think we've seen in recent past where you, it's like I said to, to uh, one person, 
uh, who was moving in totally into a political party piece, and, I, and he was a church leader, and I said, called him by name, and I said, you know what, and you get in bed with a particular party, you've lost your prophetic voice. And he said, oh, no, no, because they're right. Well, he did lose their, his prophetic voice because now only that group will listen to him, no one over here. And um, I think uh, government is, as I see it, government was set up uh, that it's uh, democracy, uh, certainly, fair and understanding and all of this type thing. Uh, and at the same time, we don't want the government uh, saying everyone has to be a member of the Wesleyan Church, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because that's what's happened. We, we see that when it's happened in Europe and so forth. Um, but at the same time, we are called to um, make sure our government is, is fair and ethical. Uh, there's an ethic with it and caring for people and that we don't get into certain caste systems and those kinds of things. So I think as, and then we're called, you know, what does the scripture say? We're called to the, to the poor and the vulnerable and the hungry. So systems can keep people there. And so we are called to speak to those systems. So I think we don't ever see ourselves as part of a political party as such, as much as we see our voice in those lines. So for example, uh, I've lobbied on cap or advocated, I should say. Well, I'm not a lobbyist. Advocate on Capitol here for hunger, for for hunger. When we saw that SNAP programs were being cut down, okay, there are families. We all have them in our congregations, and it doesn't mean that they're lazy and they don't want to work. I hate that. That always gets connected. Uh, and SNAP is a federally subsidized program exact, of food, for food provision yeah. for food mm -hmm. provision and, and for the working poor. Much of this mm -hmm. is the working poor. Uh, and so I have advocated on Capitol Hill for uh, for uh, increase in, in uh, SNAP pro food provisions, uh, certainly for immigrants. Um, uh, many years on, uh, we need comprehensive immigration reform. After all, that's fairness. That's what these people that are suffering want to come into our country, et cetera. And I realize people have come in documented, and that's a whole other story. But they're here, and they're in our churches. And so then we begin to work with this. How can we work on that? Um, and so various issues of this way, I think that's where we speak. We don't align ourselves with either, I've you know spoken on both sides of the aisle to people about some of these issues, and can you think about this? Can you work with this and advocate in those areas? So I think that, um, and you know, certainly I've been invited to the White House and Oval Office, et cetera, and every time that I've been there, Jim, it's been, I'm here for the that immigrant that has no voice, and and... And, and many times these are immigrants that love Jesus. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. they're my own people, actually. Right, right. I mean, I went into to President Obama's office and with just six other people we were invited there, and I told stories out of my own churches, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm open to all people. But, you know, if we want to talk about just that. Um, and so in various, uh, in, in, during with President Bush's time, during, with people with HIV AIDS in Africa, uh, and I know that, People would say, well, we that's their problem. No, but but that's not... It's a human problem. It's a human problem, and that's where we as God's people have a voice. That's what I want to keep saying. It's not... We're, we're called... We're, the kingdom of God is throughout the world, and we're part of that whole kingdom, and we're to call... Uh, we're to work with our own people and care for that. So as I was there, it was... I'm thinking of the many villages I'd been in Zambia where they had, you know, 
30 adults and 600 AIDS orphans. You know, what are we going to do about this? Um, so it's, 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 you see yourself in that way, and that's, in a sense, where God's called you. And I don't think it has to be some special person. I mean, I don't, I'm not any special person to speak about that. It's you just do it, and you kind of take that risk, and you think, I don't know if I can say the right things, but God gives you the words, as Paul said. He'll give you the words when you stand before the kings and queens. Yeah. We certainly live in a polarized time, Joanne, where uh, people are, you know, often defending one side or another. It feels like a kind of binary choice where I've got to be this or that. There's no in-between, there's no gray, or there's no nuance. Would you say that followers of Jesus in, in the United States and this period of time. have to be very careful that they're not subsumed by a political brand or party. I mean, uh, that that people imagine a synonym with a particular party and a Christian. Mm-hmm. That's a danger. It is very much a danger. Very much a danger. Uh, and I think too many times um, we, 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 it, when we're looking at, at, how, at the issues— we still have to look at through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of Jesus, how He cared for people, what He had to say, and their um, their value. And so, for you, uh, an intersection in the public square is really driven by that mm-hmm. that part of the human experience. Maybe differentiated from some other things that people in government wrestle with that may not be so obvious, mm-hmm. but but you're interested in the impacts on people. That's exactly, and right. you want to chase down those things that you think uh, more accurately reflect mm-hmm. uh, the way Jesus would be mm-hmm. speaking or doing. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And I'm, I'm don't mean to lead the witness here, but I, my sense is that there's no party or there's no candidate, actually, who gets it all right. No, that's exactly, Jim. I've always said that no one party has it all right. No one candidate has it all right. Uh, you you have to—so that's why you just speak uh, where, where the Scripture is, and the, you move through that. I, I don't know why—I just see this pathway through the middle. You've got this on each of the side, but there's this pathway, and I don't mean it's necessary the middle way that is bringing mm, these two things right. together. Right. It may be— all about this side, or maybe all about this side, but it never is always all about one side or the other. Right, and and so we do live in a world where people vote, and you have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that choice, the acknowledgement that the person I'm choosing may not be altogether right, That's right. is is an important concept mm-hmm. for believers, mm-hmm. even as. My candidate may prevail or lose, mm-hmm. but whoever the other candidate was may have some things mm-hmm. I might work with. And, and yeah. I'm kind of leading you into a, a, a kind of path of conversation because I know that you have had experience with people mm-hmm. on both sides of the aisle, uh, across partisan lines. Mm-hmm. Would you say that you found people on, on both sides at times with whom you would stand and say, no, they're, they're right on this time, mm-hmm. or even... I don't agree with this one, but I feel like they have a sincere interest in listening. Or I mean, it, because exactly. when, when you're on the outside, you've had the chance, Joanne, to actually be uh, in congressional uh, places. You've just described being in the Oval Office. I know you've had that. You've been at the UN. You've mm-hmm. been at the World Bank. You've been at the World yeah. Economic. I mean, you're in a world where most of us just look and read a headline or make a judgment based mm-hmm. on a social media feed. You've actually seen these people up close. What would you say to the rest of us about these people? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. As you were saying, I was remembering one, uh, one particular incident uh, in the, in the, uh, on the House side. And this was a particular 
congressman, man, uh, who had been very much against immigration reform, and he was just hardcore and whatever. And one day, and he was a believer. Um, I didn't know that until later they told me, but he was a believer. And one day he found out this friend that had been his, this friend all these years had never revealed to him that he was undocumented. Oh. And it he and he cried. I was in his office when he started telling the story. He started crying. He said, "I started looking. What is all this about?" Then see, he'd only taken a political position on undocumented, but hadn't attached it to a human being. Mm-hmm. And suddenly this, and so he wrote up some legislation that's very good, and I think it's it's, it's being tweaked certainly now. And so he invited several of us in, and there were some other congressmen in that office. If I named them, you would even know them. Uh, that I know, I, I must confess, Jim, I thought, am I in this office? I pinched myself with these guys that I really don't like. <laughs> <laughs> and the Spirit spoke to me and said, but they like this. Mm-hmm. You know, don't judge them on everything. Because mm-hmm. I'd heard a lot of things. Like, ah. But there they sat. And I thought, this I, this is a picture for me. And we sat there, and he talked, and then there were th- three of us from the evangelical immigration table in that room with him. And um, and then he said, this is what I want to do, and I want to know what you all think. And we spoke to that about it. And so were these other people that were agreeing with him. Mm-hmm. And you see, and I thought, okay, this is the way the Spirit moves, too. Uh and then he stood up and he said, I want to, he was still crying. He said, let's just hold hands and pray right here. And so we did. You know, and I held hands with those guys that I don't generally like. <laughs> <laughs> but the Lord spoke to me and said, no, people's hearts can change on certain things. So don't constantly peg them in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I just when you said that, and I've had that experience in various other ways, but that was very dramatic that night as as tears were rolling down all, I mean, I'm, I, Tears are rolling down my face because I was surprised at myself also. <laughs> but what was going to be able to take place in this and to change some hearts as they began to put a human face on a on a policy. And I think that's where we miss it too. Policies, but they don't get a human face on them. Well, and even as you're describing that, I'm imagining sometimes we we look at political figures and we don't put a human face on them. That's right, too. Uh, I I have a little bit of brief political history way back in my dawn of time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I represented Northwest Seattle in the Washington State Legislature for a brief time as a young man. I remember thinking then how different it looked when I was on the floor of the House having to make decisions yes. than when I was looking from the outside and making judgments about the people who sat exactly. there. Exactly and the right. truth is, it's not always easy. Mm-hmm. You sometimes have to make hard calls. Mm-hmm. And yes, some people are tempted by power or influence to... Mm-hmm go off the rails or, or not have integrity in their choices. But I also think there are a lot of people in government and in public office who are trying to do the best, yeah. even though everyone can't see it the same. And maybe a little grace and uh, the human face on the players can help us all exactly. maybe speak into the process ourselves. Mm-hmm. Of course, as I invite your audience to imagine you in those scenarios, maybe you could just give us, and I, I, don't, I realize this will be awkward for you because you don't want to you're not about polishing your own uh, resume, but give us a little bit of a of a resume or a, a vita about Joanne Lyons, some of the places you've been. So we know that you've been the general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church. I know that right now you're the vice chair of the National Association of Evangelicals. That's right. All right. Name some other places uh, where you've 
been invited to the table or held some kind of office. I'll, I'll, I will throw another one out. I mean, uh, the Willow Creek Church has been one of the most influential and prominent evangelical churches in the country. It went through some drama. And when Willow Creek was trying to sort that out, they, they searched across the whole country to find people that had integrity and wisdom sufficient to actually explore and report. And Joanne Lyon was one of those. No small thing, Joanne. So, and where else? Well, you asked me that, and I have to go back a bit. Um, I think um, uh, I was just thinking, Jim, early on, this is a really interesting thing. You, we have what's called the Global Wesley Alliance today, but originally that was called the Christian Holiness Association. It was all those denominations. And um, I... Uh, uh, so this is really funny. This is 1970. They were going to have a conference in Kansas City. And they always had a little tea for women. A little tea. So uh, the uh, we lived there. Uh, and I was working at that time. I was very involved on in the urban core of Kansas City, working in government programs that would have been right after the race riots in the city. Very involved in how do we... And, and, and I ran government programs there. Uh, and I did that again out of my faith, and I feel as I saw even 60 Minutes came in and did a study of what we'd done because it had been so successful. Um, and I think that's about the power of the Holy Spirit moving, that triple bottom line that we talk about. Uh, and there were other people working together, and it was about getting people not just jobs but careers. Mm -hmm. And I could give you stories of all those people that have risen to the ranks but were living in the housing projects at that time. Uh, and how we were able to work that and the dignity that came. And so they called me up to meet with the people, and they said, we, we just wanted to know if you would be responsible to do a tea for the women at the thing. And I said, a tea? Oh, my. Well, you know what? Why don't we have a, a, a panel, and we'll invite some people in, da-da-da-da. And so that—and that, that and I didn't know some of those leaders, uh, and that kind of stunned them. You know, that can't be. Uh, but anyway— uh, we had it, and uh, and we had more than a tea, and we had that. And, and then they asked if I'd stay on and do these kinds of things. And so I did, and I stayed on and did several things. And I, as I look back on that, um, that, and then out of a result of that, some people from Asbury then asked me to I'd be an adjunct professor at Asbury on church and society. So I, I say all that to say sometimes you just step in. I, I could have said, I'm not going to do a tea. I'm too busy changing the world, you know. But you step in and show up, and then God just continues to open doors and open doors and open doors. And that shaped me also as far as the church is concerned. The broader church uh, began to shape me in, that, in, in those kinds of ways. So um, um, I certainly, um, as far as the UN is concerned, I've been there involved in a variety of, uh, uh, particularly regarding the... the um, the, the 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 Millennium Development Goals, oh, yes. mm -hmm. part of the Millennium Development Goals, and now the sustainable, strategic, yeah, sustainable development goals. So as part of all of that with the UN, met many people in that. Um, and uh, then, well, let me just pause to say here for our audience that the Millennium Development Goals, which were birthed at the 
turn of the century. Yes. And then the, a 10-year program mm -hmm. of, of targets for the developing world. And then the Sustainable Development uh -huh. Goals, which is kind of the next chapter of That's that. Right. I mean, these have been hugely influential. Exactly. Most people in the United States are not even familiar with the vocabulary, but as someone who's yeah. uh, like you, have has a church family that mm -hmm. spans a globe, I can tell you that it's it's rewriting the map. I'm hearing you say you had a voice in those. That's exactly right. Which include things like uh, the elevation of women, That's and right. the protection exactly. of children, and so on. Mm -hmm. And hunger, yes. uh, eliminating hunger and and uh, and all of that, all of that, uh, and so so I was part of that. And then uh, next time with sustainable development goals, part of that as well, and continuing to work in a variety of things. And I've been invited back to the UN just last year uh, to meet with. Uh, and this was fascinating because they said they the UN had tended not to understand evangelicals. Mm -hmm because of what's happened in the mm -hmm. last few years. There's mm -hmm. a whole different view of who evangelicals are. So someone suggested that that I get, and three other people, then we meet with these other leader heads of these, they were from around the world, mm -hmm. heads of these divisions. Uh, and uh, it was interesting because we found immediate common ground uh, and, and who the church was and who we were. And later I heard that they said, boy, those aren't the kind of evangelicals. We thought they, they were. They were surprised exactly. by their prejudice, as it were. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, as far as the UN is concerned, um, I uh, um, certainly with the war in Sierra Leone, uh, again, invited us in on all kinds of UN things and flying on UN helicopters around the place. And uh, and then, then in Kosovo, I remember we were able to get people in. They could fly to Rome, and then the UN would fly us into mm -hmm. to Tehran. All of those kinds of things. Um, and those are about relationships, Jim. It's also, again, uh, showing up when when you're invited. Um, and um, goodness, you've asked me the question. I can't even answer them. I have to go back in my whole <laughs> well, but, my whole life here to see what well, all but it is. You're illustrating that yeah. as you've been faithful in the moment. That's right. New doors open, mm -hmm. and the Lord has honored that. Yeah. And we can't underestimate the power of salt and light, Joanne. That's, that's what you're right. describing, it seems to exactly. me. And Jesus said that if you're going to follow me, if, you, if we want to do this kingdom trip, mm -hmm. you have to be salt. Mm -hmm. And I think by that he meant you have to change the flavor of everything you touch. You know, once, right. once you put salt on a piece of meat, it can never go back. Mm -hmm. And you have to be salt like that, that's Jesus right. said, and light. You have mm -hmm. to change the lens or the perspective. And here you are. With those many opportunities. I was just thinking of the World Bank. Um, I spoke at a, and I'd done some things at the World Bank, but never did I ever speak at a mm -hmm. annual meeting. And uh, I was speaking at a church in D.C., and after I spoke, this woman came up to me and said, I work at the World Bank. I'm in the faith office there. <laughs> and so so next thing I knew, I was speaking at the annual meeting of the World Bank. Wow. Now, I just was pretty stunned by that. And this is what my assignment was. I want you to speak about faith, women, and conflict zones. Mm. Well, she said, you've got a lot of stories. Just tell those stories, you know. And actually, that resulted in several other things as far as World Hope is concerned. Mm -hmm. But you never know what God's going to do in those moments. I mean, I didn't. I did not prepare my speech to impact her and the relationship still continues you know with that at this moment so i think i think as we're as you're walking with the spirit god just you just open god opened doors and and i was scared to death i must say i was scared that day as i flew in to dc to run over to the world bank and do this i oh my goodness 
and, and particularly after I saw the roster that the people that were going to be in the room. Because <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a top-tier crowd by the world's measure. pretty heady. Um, and as heady like the uh, uh, World Economic, economic like Farm Davos, as well. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, but I still see, and I didn't give my testimony, you know, <laughs> my faith testimony, but faith came through what I had to say, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so I think that's that's where we we continue to uh, to move in those ways. No, you mentioned World Hope, mm-hmm. and World Hope is a a foundation, a mm-hmm. an organization, non governmental organization. Yes, an NGO uh-huh. yeah. that you helped establish. Mm-hmm. And what does it do? Well, it works in uh, we're in twenty countries around the world. Um, we're we're in more, but we're going decide to go deeper in some of the places. So mm-hmm. that can we really see change, not just kind of. A little top, yeah. but really see deep change. Uh, so we work in the areas of health, education, protection, which protection would be uh, gender-based violence, human trafficking, all those kinds of things, and ch- children, and uh, social ventures. So we're establishing businesses and this kind of thing that can really lift. Uh, the kind of, and we work alongside the church in yes. that as well. well so, and World Hope has deep roots in the Wesleyan yes, family, uh-huh, yeah. and but works across lines. Uh-huh. That's yeah. right. And water. I forgot water and sanitation. Huge, huge in water and sanitation. So those are big pieces. I'm not suggesting, Joanne, that uh, your life is so long that it's somehow, <laughs> what should we say, uh, a senior class. But it is. Uh, you, you've seen a few things yeah, yeah, yeah. and generations. And right now there's a lot of anxiety in many of our faith families about the loss of a generation or two. What do you think the church needs to do or is doing right in speaking to a new generation to persuade them that the gospel you understand is really the way? There are two things that I see uh, in the next generations. Number one, this generation Z, and even millennials for that matter, they want to change the world. How better to change the world than who we are, you Mm -hmm. know? But have we become so uh, inward and then so opinionated and so not loving uh, that we have they have rejected the church in that manner. I mean, those are questions I'm asking. So they want to change the world. This we have God has given us the roadmap to change the world for Him. And the second piece that I see is loneliness. Again, the church is a community, the community of believers, and I'm I'm concerned because we've become so individualistic in our faith. We have forgotten about community. Mm-hmm. And what does that really mean to live in community? So when I look at the at at, at our church, our church background and who we are, our theology and whatever, I'm not excluding any other church, but I'm just Straight saying right. us. I'm yes. speaking about us, our family. We have the two greatest pieces that this next generation is asking for. And we've got to live into that. We've got to stop fighting all these things on the side. We've got to stop being diverted by distracted by all things. Yes, when we're talking about race relations, we have a problem in this country, Jim. And when I go back uh, to uh, our early days with regarding race, um, we, in the Wesleyan Church, yes, we were abolitionists, we did that, but we didn't do well after Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. We isolated again. So it's time that we come back and say, wait a minute, this is 
uh, we're, this is where we are. And there are systems. Yes, there are systems that are broken in our country. And you and I know we could go down the systems that we've seen in the past, and there are still systems that are there. And we need to speak to those systems. And we need to stand with our African-American brothers and sisters, and we need to listen. One of the things that I find is that we don't do, as white folks, we don't do a very good job of listening. We don't want to hear those stories. We want to say, oh, no, no, that's not true. But it is. It's, their, it's, the, it's our African-American brothers and sisters' life that we have said, we, oh, no, that isn't true, because my life isn't that way. And so we have got to, and as I see it, we have got to do far more listening in this and, and humility. We've got to become more humble in how we are going to lead, lead and, and bring the church forward in these ways. And with compassion, listening, compassion, and humility, I think are some of the greatest things that we as a church have got to come back to and say, wait a minute, we don't have all the answers. We have got to pull together in this. And I'm hearing you say that, that that's a key factor in winning the hearts and minds of new generations yes, who actually absolutely. have deep passion and concern about right. issues that sometimes uh, they don't hear about at church. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. And, uh, and, and, and it's the power of God that, 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 that makes that difference if we can really see that. Which brings me back full circle. Uh-huh. Uh, Joanne Lyon is a person who believes deeply in the, the spiritual dimension of, of life, and that Jesus is Lord, and that Jesus' own teaching, modeling, sacrifice on the cross, the resurrection, what we might call the orthodoxy mm-hmm. of the gospel, is foundational if we want to change the world. Mm-hmm. And that the Holy Spirit uh, is, is that step, once you come to terms with Jesus, is that step about, I'm, I'm all in, and I'm willing to become an instrument, mm-hmm. to be sanctified, set apart. And uh, these, these concepts, they're not concepts, they're for you a lived reality. Right. What would you say to our audience today who might say, well, I don't know. What is she talking about really? What would you say to someone who's skeptical that the world's future and its progress hinge on coming to terms with the realities you know, mm-hmm. Jesus and the Holy Spirit? What would you say to them? I would just say I don't. There's no other way. It's the way, uh, and uh, I I don't see any other way that that change can be brought about except by that way, and and it, then it involves many other things. But that's mm-hmm. the foundation. If you're not there to start, mm-hmm. what you attempt mm-hmm. will never realize its fullness. That's right. That's exactly right. And I believe that that God continues to, as, as as believers were continually called in this in this way. And we're always learning. Um, uh, I, I well remember being in Egypt, and you've been in Egypt too. You have churches there. And I was there with our people not long after the uh, Tahrir Square and all the people mm-hmm. that were killed mm-hmm. and et cetera. And uh, the pastors were saying, you know, Joanne, um, Tahrir Square, uh, the, the Arab Spring, broke our imagination of what God can do. Well, I'm feeling, and I could believe it, boy, my imagination would be broken too. And I'm trying to figure out what to say and they, other people were talking, so I'm, my mind mm-hmm. is going. And another man, apparently he could read what, my face, and he said, oh, you, we need to explain to you. Um, he said, since the Arab Spring, four million Muslims have come to Christ. God broke our imagination because it was not big enough. Mm-hmm. And that always stays with me, Jim, uh, that we, God is so expansive 
that we can't begin to grasp all that he wants to do. And yes, our our imagination is big, but it can even hold us back Mm -hmm. from what he really wants to do. And sometimes the unforeseen is the gateway. That's right, exactly. A conversation with Joanne Lyon is a life-giving experience. That's my that's my testimony, Joanne. Oh my goodness, thank you, thank you. Thanks so much for all that you do for the good, uh, all that you do in Jesus' name, and for all the ways in which you have uh, inspired many of the rest of us. And to our audience today, I'm thinking is you have walked alongside our conversation and whether you're accessing us on a platform on YouTube or maybe on an audio platform like Spotify, maybe you're on Facebook or a social media stream, we're, on, uh, we're accessed by many different channels. But I want to encourage you to respond to us. Send us a note. Give us a message. Make a comment. Ask a question. Uh, share your thoughts, because what we've talked about today has a lot to think about, and we are so glad that you have been with us and so glad for Joanne Lyon. Thank you. Godspeed. Wonderful to be with you. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.